Music can name the unnameable and communicate the unknowable. Leonard Bernstein. Hello everyone, and welcome to Secrets of Saturn. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. On this episode, we have Mark Devlin, UK author and DJ. Mark Devlin is a UK-based club and radio DJ and music journalist specializing in black dance music in its many forms. He has played live in over 40 countries around the world. In more recent years, he has begun speaking on radio and at events about the dark forces that have been manipulating and controlling the mainstream music industry for decades. This has led to the publication of his book, Musical Truth. Mark, welcome to the show. Jason, good to be here, man. This is going to be awesome. I think you are absolutely brilliant at what you do, and I'm really looking forward to picking your brain on a lot of subjects. But before we get into anything, let's talk a quick bit about who you are, where you came from, what you do. Okay, well, I'm a radio and club DJ, and I have been for the last 26 years. I've DJed all over the UK and internationally in that time. Um, I've had a pretty good innings. You know, I've traveled to many different countries, been to the US a few times. I've done various radio shows. And uh, all this was pretty much my life and my course for the first 20 years. And I didn't really think any further than what I was doing as a DJ. And round about 2010, I underwent what I refer to as a conscious awakening, which is where I came to some understandings of great truths about the nature of reality, what's really going on in the world, who's really running things, which is very different to the official story of what we're told regarding who's running things, and specifically how this all plays out into the corporate music industry of which I've been a part for so many years and of which I've been a cog in the machine. And so when I came to all these realizations, it was pretty devastating and it rocked my world. And I'm sure many people listening to this can sympathize with that type of situation. Yeah. Straight away, I had to understand how it was that I'd been duped and conned and deceived and made a mug of for so many years because the veil was lifted for me on so many things. And I could see it so clearly that I just did not understand how I could have been so blind and I could have been walking around in a trance-like state like a bloody zombie for the previous 20 plus years you know so I set about trying to understand the big picture and of course my specialist area of interest was the part that is played by the entertainment industry and the corporate music industry specifically so I've been on that path now for about five and a half years I've put five years worth of my research into the book that I've just published musical truth and so between the covers of that book is pretty much everything that I've come to understand about what's really going on and the methods and the tactics that are used by those that control the corporate music industry and so many other walks of life. You know, basically every other aspect of human society is directed and manipulated by these same forces and these same networks of groups. And uh, so Musical Truth is everything that I've come to know, which I'm putting out there for everyone else to come to know and understand as well. Because it's absolutely vital that large numbers of people take on board this information and understand how we're all, all of us in humanity, the worldwide population, 
I used to say global, but I got into trouble with the Flat Earth crew, so I don't, <laughs> I don't use the word global anymore. <laughs> More trouble than it's worth. How the worldwide population is being spiritually, mentally, and physically enslaved, because that is the dynamic that we have going on in this world. I'd really like to throw out there that I have read your book, and I absolutely love it and totally advise everyone out there to get it, and it is, is absolutely information-packed and awesome. And I really do want to get into the social engineering that seems to have totally been wrapped up in the entertainment industry. And I'm not sure how far this goes back, and, and you can tell me what you think, but uh, it seems like it really kind of kicked in more than likely with the 1950s with rock and roll because that kind of changed the uh, the old uh, paradigm of, you know, the, how would you describe it? The, just the way people were, uh, people were kind of cookie cutter before that and rock and roll sort of broke that, that mold and uh, really started shaking things up and then you get into the 1960s and things really got turned on their heads and then all the... The older folks, you know, were completely rebelling against what the younger kids are doing, growing their hair and the, and the crazy colors, and then, of course, the drug movement. So I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that, and um, tell me what you think, uh, where, where you think all this social engineering began. In terms of how far it goes back, I had to keep revising my timeline on that as I did the research, because I was looking at things that have been happening in the last 15 years, pretty much, the dawn of the 2000s, and then I noticed that so many of the same blueprints and templates that were being used had been used in previous decades so I found myself going back to the 1980s 70s 60s right back to the 1950s where as you say the sort of rock and roll movement took off and that very much changed the landscape of popular music in those times so I trace most of the mind control and social engineering stuff back to the early days of the industry, which would be the mid to late 1950s on both sides of the Atlantic. So you had acts like Bill Haley and the Comets, for example, with Rock Around the Clock. Uh, that particular group and that track really shook up the music scene at the time because prior to that, most popular music had been ballads and it had been artists uh, publishing sheet music or uh, performing sheet music. You know, it would be many different artists taking a song and doing their interpretations of it. And most of these songs would have been slow ballads. So when Bill Haley and the Comets came along and just kicked everyone up the arse with this new style of music, which, to be fair, was, of course, based on black rhythm and blues uh, music, which came before, but that wasn't popularised at the time. It took a white group, Bill Haley and the Comets, to be the public face of that type of music for it to really kick off. So, you know, there's some political stuff to get into there. And uh, I actually have a chapter in the book talking about how black culture specifically has been targeted and it's been uh, sort of bastardized and corrupted and hijacked and co-opted in so many ways. I mean, that's a whole different subject area. But um, then you had the emergence of Elvis Presley, of course, uh, another white artist popularizing uh, basically black forms of music. But then you had the likes of Chuck Berry and Little Richard and all these other characters that were around at that time. So that's pretty much the time frame that I take it from. But it does go back much, much further. And there's a very good author friend of mine by the name of John Hamer, who's published a whole bunch of books. He did The Falsification of History, which is a great read. And he's done books on Jack the Ripper and the Titanic. And he's getting into the uh, real story of what happened in both those cases, which, surprise, surprise, is very different to the textbook Wikipedia version that we've all been uh, trained to believe. 
Uh, but anyway, John Hamer in The Falsification of History is talking about how when you go back to the days of the classical music greats, composers like Mozart and Beethoven, there is a reason why these characters were the prominent figures of their day and they were the sort of figureheads of their scene because they were the chosen ones and the favourites of that particular time. And he made the point that there were many, many other composers of music that were very talented and skilled in those times, but we've never got to hear about them. You don't get them taught in schools, and their music's not been passed down through the ages, because the industry and those that control it have always had their favourites. So with Beethoven and Mozart, it's no different to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones being elevated to the top of the 1960s scene. They were the groups that the industry decided they wanted to set to use with certain agendas, and so they were elevated to the top positions because best believe those that control and direct these industries have the power to make anything happen. You know, if they pluck somebody out of obscurity, out of some ghetto, and they decide that they've got skill and talent and they think this is somebody that can be shaped and moulded to be co-opted into an agenda that they've set out for them, they can put them on top of a pedestal and get them to be a household name and get them loved and adored by the general public. They've been doing it forever they're very well versed in how to do this so in the modern era you know at the top of the hip-hop scene which is my specialist kind of genre really you've had jay-z for many many years and there's kanye west and there's the likes of little wayne and drake you know these characters are put up there on the top of that scene and they're simply the chosen ones of this age they're the favorites they're the ones that have been placed into that position if it wasn't them it'd be somebody else it's not about these artists, it's about the fact that there is always a position that exists for an influential act, and they just usher in these different names as they choose. They would not be there by accident, and the forces that control the industry would not take a chance on, for instance, a group like the Beatles just getting as big as they did naturally, organically, just as a matter of chance. They don't leave anything to chance. Everything is done according to very well-thought-out plans. And they play the long game, they display incredible levels of patience, and they're very well organised in what they do. You know, they're quite a formidable force. That's why they've been running things so successfully for so long, and that's why most people that you mention it to would absolutely deny that they've been mind-controlled or socially manipulated in any way by the popular music that they listen to, because... It's done so stealthily and it's done so much under the radar and so much of it goes on in the subconscious mind that vast swathes of the population have no idea that they're being played for suckers. And this is what I wanted to understand, how that process had been applied to me. And so, you know, once again, everything that I've found is with, between the covers of that book. Now, the Beatles are probably a really good example of one of the earliest of the, of the biggest that ever happened uh, probably Elvis would be the first super pop star I would think and then the Beatles be the first super pop group what do you think was going on behind the Beatles I from what I've looked into there definitely seems to be evidence that there was manipulation going on behind the scenes about the Beatles but what has your research uncovered about them because obviously a lot of what was going on in the 60s the Beatles were a huge part of it you could get into the Beatles for days and what I was talking about regarding so much sort of 
passing you by and you, you, you don't notice that it's going on and you could spend years and years and years just not seeing what is blatantly bloody obvious when the veil is lifted and it's pointed out to you can be applied to the Beatles because I've always loved the Beatles music and I've kind of studied them from quite a young age. I'm not old enough to remember the 1960s, but I'm very familiar with how big the Beatles were in that decade. And when I used to look at them in footage of old interviews and such, I used to think of them as these wildly uh, creative and ambitious individuals that kind of shaped and moulded this legacy for themselves and put out this incredible music and had this amazing talent for writing songs. And they just got big off the back of, you know, their hard work and some good luck. And now, with the benefit of hindsight and having done the research and with the benefit of maturity, I look at them in a different way. And when I look at old interview footage of those four guys, I see four manipulated puppets. Sorry to say, I know that's going to shatter the world of so many Beatles fans. But, you know, just the fact that they all used to look the same, dress the same, have the same haircuts, say the same things in interviews, you know, behave the same way. All of it just seems to be directed and controlled. None of it seems to be natural and spontaneous. And then when you get down to the songs that they sang, there's a, a very strong uh, suggestion that the Beatles were actually a product of the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations in London, which is this kind of think tank organisation, which is all about social manipulation and engineering and mass mind control, all done on uh, a sort of below-the-radar basis. It's tied in very much with the Frankfurt School in Germany, which is all about the same kind of thing. It's got links into the Fabian Society in London and also Cambridge University in England, where a lot of this stuff goes on. And it will have its equivalents in the United States as well, which are all about these different methods of social manipulations. So much of these suggestions came from a former British intelligence operative by the name of John Coleman. And he's the guy that wrote the book The Committee of 300 that people might be familiar with, which is kind of spilling the beans on the structure of the New World Order and all these powerful bloodline families that basically run all these aspects of human society. And Coleman came out with the suggestion that the Beatles were a product of Tavistock. He was certainly in a position to have known that for a fact, if it is indeed the case. And he also claimed that there was a character out of the Frankfurt School by the name of Theo Adorno, who, he says, wrote many of the Beatles' lyrics. So you've got this kind of stuffy old German, uh, you know, uh, science guy, basically, writing all these pop songs that have been attributed to these four lovable lads from Liverpool, if that turns out to be the case. You know, I can't say for definite that it is. I'm just pointing out the fact that these rumours persist. And all throughout the Beatles' career, there have been strange kind of occult and esoteric elements to them. Just in the very name of the Beatles, a lot of people take the name to be wordplay on the word beat, because there were a lot of beat groups coming out of Liverpool at that time, and that was kind of the name for that genre of music. But uh, the Winged Beetle was actually the name of a book of poetry published by the notorious occultist Alistair Crowley. And when you get into the backstory of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and David Bowie and Elton John and Led Zeppelin and so many other 
influential musicians, you find they're very much tied in with the works and the mystery school ceremonial magic teachings of Alistair Crowley. He pops up everywhere. He's almost like a rock star in his own right. And mm. the Beatles were no different. You know, they expressed a, a reverence for Alistair Crowley. He very famously appears on the sleeve of their Sgt. Pepper album as one of their heroes. So he wrote this book, The Winged Beetle, and uh, the scarab beetle was this creature that was very much worshipped by the cultures of ancient Egypt. And it was seen to be uh, this supernatural kind of creature that was linked to the sun. There's a lot of sun symbolism in there. And it was very much revered by those civilizations. And so there are some that think the beetles may be named after, you know, this scarab beetle or the winged beetle. And it may have some kind of occultic elements there. And then you get into uh, the whole thing with Paul McCartney, <laughs> which uh, I don't know if we want to get into that today, because it tends to take quite a long time to do it justice. You know, Mike, I'd like you to touch on it just a little bit. Uh, I, I know you're going to bring up the Paul is dead theory. For anybody who's heard that and just instantly dismisses it, I'd like you to touch on it. And there's more to it than just, oh, that's, that's, that's Looney Tunes. If you would, just kind of give a couple of the points. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I'd like to hear your, some of your thoughts on that. Well, there's a reason why my chapter on Paul McCartney is 15,000 words and is the longest chapter in the book, because you can't do this subject justice with a couple of sound bites. And I've discovered this in public talks. So where I just pay lip service to it and I say, oh, by the way, the real Paul McCartney died in 1966 and was re replaced by an imposter. Naturally, people scoff at it. Naturally, people's first reaction is to think that you're crazy. The whole thing is ridiculous and it can't possibly be true. You cannot express the depth of this subject area in a couple of sentences, as I say. Well, here's the thing. If indeed the Tavistock part is true, it's not hard to believe that they wanted to keep, keep this project going and um, whatever may have happened to whoever James Paul McCartney originally was... They'd want to keep this going because it was only a few years into their career and they were the biggest thing in the world. So if you are going to lean towards the evidence that they are a product of Tavistock, it's really not much more of a jump that they would want to continue this. And if they had to replace one of the members, they would do so. Well, absolutely. I mean, the official version of this conspiracy theory, if you like, is that Paul McCartney was involved in this tragic accident in 1966. And there are two dates that are generally put on it. I mean, who knows the truth of this thing? Who can possibly say for definite whether it happened or when it happened, apart from those that were actually involved in the incident? And the number of those that would still be alive today are very few and far between and are diminishing you know, with, with every passing year. We lost George Martin this year, the Beatles' famous producer. I mean, if this thing took place, he surely would have known about it. We lost Cynthia Lennon last year, John's first wife. She surely would have known about it. So every year that we, we lose more and more of these people, you know, the, the truth gets silenced and gets buried and it gets more and more impossible to discover the truth of the matter. And did any of those people ever hint anything? Uh... I've not heard George Martin make any hints. I think there were some comments in Cynthia Lennon's biography uh, called A Twist of Lennon, where she mentioned that some very strange things started to happen with the Beatles around about 1966. She didn't go into specifics, 
but there's a few kind of hints there. I'd have to dig out what she actually wrote, but there was something about it. But going back to the official version of what happened, Paul is supposed to have uh, been involved in this tragic car accident, and he just happened to get killed, and nobody could have foreseen it. It was just one of those tragic things. The Beatles and their manager, Brian Epstein, panicked and thought, oh, my God, what are we going to do? If the public find out, that's the end of the Beatles, uh, this great money-spinning enterprise that we've got. You know, the Beatles are finished. Uh, girls are going to be going hysteric and want to commit suicide. There's going to be, uh, you know, mass trauma all over the land. So they very quickly worked to find a replacement that they would train up and get to impersonate Paul so that the public would be none the wiser and they could pass him off as the real Paul McCartney for the rest of his days and nobody would know. This does, to me, sound a little far-fetched because it relies on them finding somebody within a matter of days that didn't happen to be doing anything for the next 50 years and you know would have said would, would have said uh, yeah okay i'll be paul mccartney yeah i can't play guitar for shit but you know you teach me and uh, i can't write songs or sing but you know i'm sure you can teach me in the next couple of days and yeah i'll have plastic surgery to look like him no problem that really does seem a little unfeasible to me so the alternative theory is that paul mccartney did indeed die in 1966 but it was a long planned for thing and it was no tragic, spontaneous accident. He was deliberately taken out. And this would either be a, some form of ritual sacrifice. And again, I'm conscious of people rolling their eyes and saying, oh, my God, this guy is crazy when you mention that phrase. It's another one that can't be done justice in just a couple of sound bites. You have to do the research. You have to uh, invest the time and approach it with an open mind. And when you do, and if you go to... Uh, a wide eclectic variety of sources you will discover that unfortunately ritual sacrifice does go on in the upper echelons of human society so-called and that these elite priest classes that control everything are absolutely obsessed with ritual ceremonial magic stuff and that does involve the odd sacrifice from time to time so that's one option the other option is that mccartney would have been taken out by the forces that control the music industry for some other reason, uh, he was not playing ball with some kind of agenda that was being laid out for the group. He was becoming a liability. Uh, he was becoming outspoken on stuff. He couldn't be relied on to uh, keep quiet about certain things, and they couldn't take the risk. So he had to be taken out for some reason or another. And uh, I think the majority of serious Paul is Dead researchers, and there's quite a number of them out there now, would lean towards those second options, which is that McCartney was deliberately taken out and it wasn't just this tragic accident. It almost seems like damage limitation. So, you know, the forces that control things would prefer the general public to believe that the character we think of today as Paul McCartney is the original Paul McCartney and nothing's ever changed. But if people are going to lean towards some kind of conspiracy theory, they would prefer that they lean towards the former version, which is that there was this terrible accident and those nice people behind the Beatles who care so much about the public were so concerned about girls committing suicide and people getting all traumatised that they thought the kindest thing to do is to find another Paul and uh, nobody would be any the wiser. And we're doing it for very benevolent purposes, you know. Uh, we're doing it 
to help people because it's the right thing to do. And this fella that steps into Paul's shoes is is a smashing guy. He's doing it for you know f- for the fans, and he's sacrificed the rest of his life for this. So isn't he great? They would prefer people to believe that version of events rather than the version which states that McCartney was taken out. And if anyone really is scoffing and, and laughing and uh, just dismissing this whole idea of ritual sacrifice. What do they think happened to Prince the other day? You know, how many 57-year-old guys in perfect health who are vegan, who exercise well, who uh, practice spiritual disciplines, he was a Jehovah's Witness, just happened to die in lifts at the age of 57 of the flu? And, you know, not only that, take it back to Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston. I mean, you know, soul singers just happened to die in bathtubs all the time don't they in hotels and you know (laughs) when their daughter was in the very same bathtub 24 hours earlier unconscious happens all the time it's completely natural you know regular everyday business then think back to john lennon uh uh, yeah john lennon what happened with him and bob marley you know who just happened to contract this rare form of cancer which spread through his toe you know he just happened to be this outspoken political reggae singer that had got up the nose of the cia and the political establishment of his day. And then he just happened to get cancer, you know. And uh, so many other artists that you could talk about in, in that vein. Jimi Hendrix, you know, another outspoken anti-establishment kind of iconic figure that spoke to a, a generation of young people. And he just happened to overdose on barbiturates or whatever the official story was. So, you know, for anyone that thinks the idea that the industry would take out one of its own is absurd and couldn't possibly take place, then you've got a lot of debunking to do when you get into the fine detail of what happened to all these other artists, because it's endless. You know, I think you're onto something there. And uh, since it did just happen, let's let's talk about Prince for just a moment. What have you uncovered uh, since that just happened? What kind of what kind of evidence is there that there was dirty deeds going on there? Again, with Prince, as with all things, it's pretty much impossible for those of us detached from the situation to say with any certainty what did or did not happen. We can only go with the clues that we're presented with. We can only go with the evidence that we have access to. So I'm always very suspicious of anyone that comes out and says, this definitely happened. I know for a fact that this is what went on. Uh, Because uh, only those that were actually present on the scene can know for certain. As I said, you know, similar to the McCartney situation. But we can go with our best guesses and we can assimilate and consolidate all the anomalies and all the discrepancies and we can come to some conclusions which is that the official version of what happened doesn't make a jot of sense and just the fact that the mainstream media kept changing their bloody story i mean first of all we get prince has died at the age of 57 of the flu yeah because that happens all the time doesn't it (laughs) And, and then that gets morphed into oh yeah he was discovered in an elevator And um, it seems that he was on a bunch of pharmaceutical medications and he may have overdosed on them. So there's echoes of what happened to Michael Jackson going on there. And then a few days later, that had morphed into uh, Prince had AIDS. Yeah, he secretly had AIDS since the 90s and nobody knew about it. But that's why he got ill. So (laughs) all these different versions of things contradict themselves for a start. Then you get all this strange stuff being added, like... Did you hear the comment from L.A. Reid, part of L.A. and Babyface? He's a a music producer. No, no, I didn't hear that. 
Okay, well, L.A. Reid was part of L.A. and Babyface. They produced a whole load of um, swing beat and soul R&B acts back in the 80s and 90s. And I think he's a judge now on one of these bloody awful talent shows on TV. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he is, of course, a product of the industry, owned lock, stock and barrel. But he came out a couple of days after Prince's demise. And he made a reference to this business surrounding elevators. Because in Prince's song, Let's Go Crazy... There's a famous uh, lyric where he says, we ain't going to let the elevator bring us down. And uh, L.A. Reid said that he was in conversation with Prince once because he used to know him. And Prince said to him, do you know what the elevator represents? And L.A. Reid says, no, what is it? And Prince said, it's the devil. Mm. And so mm. then we get the news that Prince just happens to have been found dead in an elevator. In an elevator, yeah. And I had a, somebody cropped up in my email inbox the other day it's fascinating since i started doing this research and started putting my book out i get emails every single day from strangers uh wanting to discuss some aspect of stuff that goes on in the music business you know sometimes it's musicians or producers and they say i used to be a part of the industry i've seen the stuff you're talking about uh, I've attended some of these parties that you reference, and I can tell you, you're absolutely on point with what you say. Uh, I know because I've been there, and thank God I got out of the industry. So it's great to get emails like that because it validates all the research that I've done, and it shows me that I'm on the right track with it. But then you get other people that just pick, on, pick up on little snippets and little tidbits of information and really embellish it and really have some stuff to offer. And this one woman that emailed me said, was getting into the etymology of the word elevator and the fact that it begins with El, E-L, mm, which in yeah. Hebrew means God. And we also get into words like Elohim. And El is also connected to Saturn. Yeah. And the dark influence of the planet Saturn feeds into the story of those that control the music business and the true nature of it big time. It crops up like an Alistair Crowley cameo. You see <laughs> Saturn everywhere. Um, and then she was saying, you know, the second part, uh, El Eveta. Veta could be Vader, which means uh, father, I think, or um, overlord. And, you know, there's lots mm -hmm. of fascinating stuff to get into there. So that's the business with the elevator. And then you've got all these comments which Prince is said to have made in recent months and years. I mean, he certainly came out in an interview in 2011 talking about chemtrails. And I'm sure a lot of people have seen that. If they haven't, you can get it on YouTube. If you just type in Prince interview chemtrails, I'm sure it will come up. So he's on this talk show and he just spontaneously raises the issue of chemtrails. And he talks about the fact that if you look up to the skies on the average day, you can see these crisscross lines of all this chemical crap that's being pumped out into the skies. And he talks about the fact that everyone's getting ill and it's making friends of his go crazy and stuff when all this crap falls to earth. So celebrities aren't really supposed to talk about that kind of stuff. And no. <laughs> if they do, then you can guarantee that it's going to raise the attention of certain parties. And there's other things that have been attributed to him. The reason I say they've been attributed is because I've not been able to identify the interviews in which he's alleged to have said these things. So there's all these memes that have been going on Facebook. He's supposed to have made a comment about the genocidal Jews that control the industry. He's supposed to have said, you know, the genocidal Jews that control the music industry is the reason that I will never play Israel. Now, I don't know if that's a genuine quote, but if it is, you can understand why that would have pissed off those that control these industries. Absolutely. And he's supposed to have spoken out about the depopulation agenda, you know, 
Agenda 21 and eugenics and vaccines and all this sort of stuff. So if it is the case that he's been making these comments in recent years, then it is conceivable that he's been seen as a liability. He's been seen as a bit of a loose cannon. He's been seen as somebody that's probably served his purpose. He's served, served the industry very well for the many decades that he was around and fulfilled many parts of their agenda. But, um, you know, everyone has a shelf life and, you know, maybe Prince had reached the end of his. I've done two podcasts in recent days, actually, getting into the occult aspects of Prince and getting into uh, some of the analysis of his lyrics and some of these themes, these recurring themes of duality that keep cropping up year after year. A uh, couple of fascinating volumes, one with Freeman and a guy called Matt Serju from the UK and another one with a friend of mine called Dan Munro. So if people want to check those out and really want to delve into the world of Prince and the hidden aspects of him, I would certainly recommend those. But as far as what did happen to him, you know, there's three options. There always is. There's the official version of events that you get from the mainstream media, which is apparently then he died of flu at the age of 57. Then you've got uh, the sort of conspiracy theory, which is that he was taken out. And then you've got another option, which is that he never actually died, but his death is in some way a hoax. And he's gone off to live out his remaining years somewhere outside of the public spotlight. And it was all this elaborate ruse to make people think that he'd passed away when actually he hasn't. We got that with David Bowie earlier this year as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Many researchers seem to think that Bowie hadn't actually died, but he just retired the public persona. And he himself had gone off to live out his years somewhere. You get this with all these legends. You, you do, and it's actually not even that hard to believe like that someone might finally, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, be like, you know what, I'm done with this. It's not actually that hard to accept, really. Well, absolutely. I mean, you got it with Elvis Presley. When Elvis died, there were so many rumours that he hadn't actually died, especially as he was only 42 at the time. Uh, you got it right. with Jim, Jim Morrison. You get it with Tupac. You get it with Michael Jackson. Some of it might be down to fans that just do not want to face up to the idea that their hero is no longer in this physical domain. And so they right. delude themselves into believing they're still alive. But then there could be some credibility to it also. Who really knows? So with Prince, we have these three options. You know, it happened the way we're told it, di it did. Uh, he was taken out or he's not really dead. And my money is on the middle option that he was taken out because I've seen this sort of thing before. There's so much that doesn't add up. There's so much weird stuff that you always get in these cases that um, I think that's what went on. Well, much like Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix, too, the stories kept changing, you know, the day of, then the next day, then you know, a couple of days later, like, things kept shifting. It's like, okay, how would you not know? Like, there had to have been people there that saw this. Why would it change, especially in a drastic way? Sure. And there's all this stuff with the color purple as well. And it very much ties in to the 90th birthday of the Queen of England, or the Queen of Germany, as I prefer to refer to her. <laughs> very, so very um, we had things like the Niagara Falls on the US-Canada border being drenched in purple, illuminated in purple on the Queen's birthday. And we also had monuments like the Empire State Building and a whole load of other monuments around the world being lit up in purple. And the official version for that that we were told was, oh, it's to mark the 90th birthday of Her Majesty, you know. So why was purple chosen? And isn't it a massive coincidence with odds of many, many millions to one, probably, that Prince, of all artists, 
happened to die very close to the Queen's birthday. I think it was the day after or something. Mm. And he was very closely associated with the colour purple. So it's almost as if these monuments being lit up in purple was marking the passing of Prince rather than the 90th birthday of the Queen. And if these monuments being lit up in purple was to mark the passing of Prince, they got it all organised pretty bloody quickly. Mm. Because imagine the logistics and all the teams that would have to be in operation to organise something like lighting up the whole of the Niagara Falls in purple. You know, they'd have to have crews in there days before setting it all up. So if nobody knew Prince was going to die, and it was just one of these terrible things that happened, then how did they get it organised so quickly? That's if you don't go for the idea that it was all for the Queen's 90th birthday. And again, my question would be, why purple? Purple followed Prince throughout his career. Uh, and purple is, interestingly, another colour that is very closely associated with Saturn. Uh, and this being Secrets of Saturn, uh, we, sh- <laughs> we, should, we should get into that. So purple, particularly when it's seen together with gold, purple and gold, uh, are very symbolic of Saturn. You get the same thing with blood red and black when you see those colours together. And those two colours, blood red and black, are very closely associated with the British royal family. They crop up in the trooping of the colour. And you have the beef eaters and you know, these guards standing outside Buckingham Palace and all these other monuments in London that wear red and black, blatant Saturn symbolism. So isn't that an interesting element to it? Very much so. Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's it with Prince. I'm sure there's more stuff that's going to come to light in the coming days. But as ever, there's more questions than answers. But anyone that believes he just happened to die at the age of 57, this is the other thing. I've spoken to people that were at his recent concert in Perth western australia just a couple of couple of months ago and they've said that he was leaping and jumping about stage like a man half his age a picture of mm. health and vitality full of life not someone that you would expect to be at death's door we had this strange business of prince was in his private jet apparently flying back to minneapolis and the private jet had to make an emergency landing when he was taken ill with flu-like symptoms so uh, apparently they couldn't wait until they got to the, the destination. They had to make a forced emergency landing at a cost of what would have been several hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that. And yet it was deemed necessary, apparently. And uh, then we get these strange comments that Prince is supposed to have made in his final days. A few days before he's said to have died, he supposedly said uh, or made a comment saying, don't shed any tears for me just yet. Uh so, you know, there's some possible foreshadowing there. And it's all very strange. Lots of parallels with Michael Jackson, actually, because, you know, both these deaths have been blamed on pharmaceutical meds. And uh, loads of parallels between those two artists, both born in 1958. Both suffered uh, traumatic childhoods, you know, came from abusive family backgrounds. Michael Jackson famously at the hands of his father. Both became massive, phenomenally successful superstars in the 80s. And it's very much Prince versus Michael Jackson in that decade. So their career trajectory was very similar. And they both displayed hints of multiple personalities as well when you get into it. Uh, Because Prince had lots of alter egos and pseudonyms. There was this uh, Camille character that he portrayed in his Notorious Black album. And then there was this uh, sort of female rapper called Cat that he slipped into on Alphabet Street and he was known by lots of different names like Jamie Starr, Alexander Nevermind, Christopher Tracy and 
that sort of thing tends to raise my eyebrows and get my ears pricked up because I've done a lot of research into trauma-based mind control and particularly monarch programming which is a division of MK Ultra that people may have heard of and this is absolutely endemic throughout the entertainment industry many of your favorite A-list Hollywood actors many television personalities and a whole load of musicians famous singers uh, would appear to be victims of this thing called trauma-based mind control and the way it plays out into monarch programming. And the way that you spot the signs of this is when artists display evidence of dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. Because when they undergo these horrific traumas that leads to uh, these conditions, it creates these different alters in their minds. And these alters are programmable with different personalities. And they can all be brought forward at will by a handler using a certain trigger, which can be a phrase or a pattern, a colour, a piece of music, something else. When these people know what they're doing, they can cause these individuals to switch between different personalities. And so whenever you get an artist that uses lots of pseudonyms and slips into these different identities from time to time, it does raise the question of whether the presence of trauma-based mind control could be there. So that's another question which arises with Prince and his fascinating and phenomenal and very long career. So getting back mm. to, we saw a lot of social upheaval in the 60s, and I think the assumption here is that things were changed on purpose, that, that, that it was directed. And we had all this social upheaval and the Vietnam War was going on, yeah. and we went from this very almost uptight 50s, early 60s thing to being this hippie, drug-infested, everybody was kind of just doing their own thing. And it was very, very different, and that caused a lot of people to be at odds with each other because you had this old paradigm clashing with this younger generation new paradigm. And there's definitely a very strong evidence that this was all directed. And I'm very curious how we went from the very colorful 60s into the 1970s where Within the first few years, everything started getting very dark and sterile and drab. And uh, what do you think happened there? Like, why did we go from, you know, especially you could see in the old Star Trek, everything was very colorful and bright and, you know, more happy and everything. And then we get into the 70s and all of a sudden it's this completely stark environment and everything was very uber realistic. And what do you think was going on there? Well, the 1960s absolutely smacks of social engineering. It's like a textbook case study in how to do it they really did a number on the 60s or particularly the the second half of that decade because the way the first half of the 60s panned out was very different to the way the decade ended up in 1969 so you look at 1960 and society both in the uk and the us was still very kind of conventional and uh quite staid and it was still pretty much steeped in the post-war era, you know, recovering from the effects of the Second World War. Uh, there wasn't a great deal of um, dynamic stuff going on. The music scene certainly wasn't very dynamic. Uh, that only really happened as the decade progressed. And so slowly, year by year, as the 60s went on, human society started to change. But round about 1965, it started to change big time. And then from 65 through to 69... Everything just changed beyond recognition in so many ways. 
1965, you had all these artists starting to emerge out of Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles. So we're getting into the realms of the work of Dave McGowan here, who wrote the book Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. And unfortunately, Dave passed away last year on the 22nd of November, of all dates. But he did put out a fantastic amount of work looking into the backgrounds of all these prominent artists that emerged out of that scene, the folk rock scene, the hippie scene, as it was known, counterculture. So he demonstrated that when you look into the family backgrounds of the likes of, famously, Jim Morrison of The Doors, and then Frank Zappa, and the Mamas and the Papas, and Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and the Birds, and the Eagles, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, and Buffalo Springfield, and Captain Beefheart, and Joan Baez, and Joni Mitchell, and so many other artists that you might care to name that came out of that scene. Time and time again, what you find is connections going back into military intelligence or the CIA, or the Pentagon, or the Defence Department, or some other aspect of the government. So the fathers of all these prominent musicians were engaged in some way in those, those kind of professions. So this raises the very interesting question of whether that whole scene, which very much changed the attitudes and the social dynamic of an entire generation, was this organic, natural thing that just happened and occurred by itself under its own steam or whether the whole thing was cynically manipulated and brought into place by elements of military intelligence so you know all these musicians were kind of under direction through the connection that their fathers had back into these uh, institutions to help to shape and mold this scene to deliberately change the attitudes and behaviours and perceptions of young people during those years. So all of this coincided with so many other things which very much traumatised the general public in the latter half of the 1960s, and particularly the younger generation. So you had the Vietnam War, and that began, what, in about 1965 also. And we should just mention, going back to Jim Morrison and his family background, I mean, the classic example that Dave McGowan cites of connections between the music scene and military intelligence is Jim Morrison's father, who was a naval admiral, who was in charge of the fleet of ships involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which basically springboarded America into its ground war in Southeast Asia. So, uh, as McGowan pointed out to me when I interviewed him, you've got Jim Morrison, who has always been perceived as this larger-than-life, iconic rock god who represents rebellion and... Uh, you know, resistance against the establishment. And his dad basically started the Vietnam War. <laughs> how, do you, how do you reconcile those two <laughs> things? I know, right? Yeah. And with every other artist that came out of Laurel Canyon, the connections are the same. So you had the Vietnam War and the horrific loss of life that that brought and, you know, the very traumatizing effect it had on the American public. Uh, and then you had things like the Manson family murders, you know, Charlie Manson, who came out of this organisation or was closely connected to it, called the Process Church of the Final Judgment, very much steeped in dark occult satanic practices. At the same time, in 1966, you had the emergence of the Church of Satan under its high priest Anton LaVey, and the Church of Satan had a lot of links into the Process Church, a lot of uh, prominent celebrities of the time were involved in the Church of Satan. Sammy Davis Jr. was a, a high-ranking member. Jane Mansfield was a part of that. 
Um, and in turn, the Process Church was connected to David, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer. And also Sirhan Sirhan, the guy that is said to have shot Robert Kennedy, was associated with the Process Church as well. And he's said to have been seen attending various uh, rituals that they held there. So isn't that interesting? Uh, of course, you had the JFK murder as well in late 63, which could be seen to have kick-started this whole series of monumental uh, socially changing events through the 1960s. You had uh, the moon landing hoax, the Apollo uh, faked moon landings, because that's surely what it was, which also tied into this whole thing. You had all this talk of the astrological age of Aquarius, which is supposed to have been occurring at that time, around about the end of the 1960s. That was immortalised in the movie Hair with the song Age of Aquarius. Uh, what have I forgotten about what was going on in the 60s? Well, there was all the social unrest, of course. There was the Black Panthers and all these other social movements. You had the murder of Martin Luther King, the murder of Malcolm X, the murder of Bobby Kennedy. All this stuff was deeply troubling and traumatizing to, to people at that time. And racial tensions were really brought to the forefront as well. Yeah, for sure. You also had the emergence of the contraceptive pill around about that time. And that's said to have led to sexual emancipation and a change in attitudes towards sex, social attitudes. So this all ties into this idea of the hippie era and make love, not war, where everyone was going around having free love, free sex, you know, not worrying about the consequences. And you had things like Woodstock, you know, which was all about that, that same kind of vibe. And then very importantly, not to forget, the emergence of LSD. Turn on, tune in, drop out, that whole thing which was popularised by Timothy Leary, this uh, university professor who was seen as this groovy, trendy kind of guy that came out of the establishment, but he was uh, coercing and persuading young people at the time to go on these amazing journeys of self-discovery and raise their consciousness by going on these acid trips. And LSD was everywhere. And it was in later years that it emerged that Timothy Leary was actually an asset of the CIA, he, yep. admit, he admitted to this himself. You yes, also have this character, Ken Kesey, who was the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the original novel, later made into a film starring Jack Nicholson. And that story was all about a sort of mind control institute, an experimental kind of lab, which absolutely smacks of CIA control as well. And it turns out, sure enough, it emerges later on that Ken Kesey also worked for the CIA and was himself a mind control subject. But he uh, had this very colourful psychedelic van, rather like the one that the kids in Scooby-Doo used to go around in. And um, he would go around the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco and other areas in California where all these hippies were congregating and distribute free LSD, just give out all these tabs of acid, you know, and encourage kids to get high that way. And as I say, you know, he was exposed as a CIA asset as well. So... It begs the question, how much, if any of this, happened by chance? And was it all under the direction of the CIA, military intelligence, you know, various other fa facets of the government, with the express purpose of changing human society beyond recognition? Look at the way uh, society was in 1969 compared to how it had been in 1960. All these monumental social changes... And there seems to be something about the 1960s, as you said, 
that made it important for them to be doing all this stuff during those years. You could certainly pin a lot on 1966. And I don't know if, if it's because of the numerology involved, because these dark occult controllers of all these things are absolutely obsessed with their symbolism and with their numbers. They're into Kabbalistic numerology and all other expressions of it. So there's the 66, the two sixes, and you know maybe you could make a case for the nine being turned upside down to make another six, i.e. 666. But there was something important about 1966. So you had the establishment of the Church of Satan that year. You had the movie Rosemary's Baby, which is all about this satanic cult. And it's a fascinating film, and I would suggest there's a lot of truth to the narrative of that movie in terms of what really goes on. Absolutely. And that movie was brought out in 1968, but the lead Satanist character in it points to a calendar at one point, and it's a 1966 calendar, and he says, this is year one. It all starts here. So there was something very important about 66. That's the year that McCartney is supposed to have been taken out according to the Paul is Dead theory as well. And it's the year that so much of the music started to change. The Beatles music changed from these uh, fairly simplistic, innocent kind of rhythm and blues-based pop songs that your granny and your auntie could sing along to, to <laughs> a lot of this very psychedelic, experimental stuff. Very strange tracks like I Am The Walrus and Revolution Number no. 9 and uh, Helter Skelter. All these very strange psychedelic records. And the music changed on both sides of the Atlantic as well. All this psychedelic stuff was coming out of the prominent acts in the UK just the same way as it was coming out of the US. And so you ask yourself, is all this by chance? Can all this just happen by accident? Or does all of it smack of being directed by a hidden hand? And as you said, as the 1970s dawned, a lot of this stuff seemed to just kind of dissipate. So you didn't really hear too much about the hippie movement going into the 70s. A lot of the acts that had been very popular towards the tail end of the 60s kind of tailed off. And that whole Laurel Canyon scene kind of fizzled out in time. The Haight-Ashbury San Francisco scene just kind of fizzled out. Uh, you didn't hear so much about LSD, you know, going forward. So there was something about that decade, the 60s, that was deemed very important. But we're certainly still feeling the ripples from it now. I mean, it changed society so much. And I've told the anecdote before a couple of times about how when I was a lot younger, I was in, I would often be watching TV with my parents. And you'd be in one of those embarrassing situations where you're watching a movie or something with your folks and a sex scene comes on. And you're like 12 or 13 or something and you start to shuffle awkwardly in your seat because you're sat there watching it with your mum and dad. And always when this would happen, my folks would say, oh, here we go. I blame the 60s for this. <laughs> and what they meant was the relaxed attitudes towards sex and the fact that it was all over popular culture now and you just expect to see it in films they pinned it all on the 60s and the emergence of the contraceptive pill and sexual emancipation and you know all that stuff that went on they were very much aware of the fact that the 60s changed people's social attitudes big time and they absolutely did and so Society went off down a very different path to what it would have done if it had been left to its own devices, I feel. Well, the one thing I could definitely point out is that the, the family structure got completely, just absolutely devastated compared to what it had been. You know, family, family units are very tight. 
in in the world you know from the World War II era on upwards, and then you hit the sixties. There, the older generation, the younger generation were so opposite that it created all of this massive breakup in the family units, and then that did carry through the seventies all the way on up. You know, by the time you hit the eighties, divorce rates are through the through the roof, and it's just not the same world anymore. Yeah, for sure. I mean, people often ask what would have been the motive for this Laurel Canyon scene, you know, the whole hippie scene being manipulated and controlled by hidden forces. Why would they bother to do that? And one reason I think would be what you've just said, to drive a wedge between the generations, to make young people completely alienated from their parents' generation, the old guard, you know, so that you you break up any kind of social cohesion there. And that has an effect on the family dynamic as well. And then the other... Uh, reason for doing it would be to get an entire generation of young people who might otherwise be galvanized and motivated towards any kind of political uh, activism you know really standing up against the system uh, objecting very strongly to the Vietnam War uh, maybe you know putting together social movements that try and organize people keeping back their taxes so that they don't fund this war machine you know if you can get all these people kind of tripped out and uh you know listening to all this music and chilling out and doing smoking dope and taking acid and tripping out and just not worrying about it and just being all about love and not war then you've kind of deactivated what could potentially be a generation of activists you know and you've kind of neutered them into uh you know not being a threat at all so that i think would be another reason for them uh putting so much logistics into that whole operation at that time right and one would think that uh in the 1960s this whole globalist new world order agenda was starting to really kick into its uh later stages and they needed to do what they could do to make sure they to minimize their opposition i would say this is a key point I mean, the controllers that we're talking about really do play the long game and they display incredible levels of patience. And if anything, you've got to admire them for that. I mean, we're talking sick, demented psychopaths, of course. Uh, so it's, it's hard to admire them on the whole. But if there's one aspect of their activity that you've got to tip your hat to, it's the fact that they are so organised and so committed in what they plan to do that they really would have been planning all the stuff that's being rolled out right now in 2016 and in all the years that have led up to this point, they would have been planning this back in the 1960s and before that, best believe. I mean, construction started on the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in 1966. So there's another connection back into 66 and throwing forward to 2001. And also Stanley Kubrick's landmark movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey, was being produced in 1966 as well. And isn't it interesting that out of all the years in the future that that storyline could have been set in, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke just happened to settle on 2001. Especially since it had a different title at first and then it was changed to uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Right. Well, you might expect it to be 2000, because if they're talking about the future, then 2000 is the dawn of a new millennium. But for some reason, they chose 2001. So, uh... The point is that the World Trade Center towers were being constructed in 66 and you can bet your life that it was in the plans right from the start that they would have been brought down 35 years later according to the plan 
in 2001. I mean, David Rockefeller was a key figure uh, in the construction of the World Trade Center towers in, in getting that whole thing done. And of course, he was around in 2001 in New York to witness their being brought down. The old bastard made sure he kept himself alive. I mean, he's 101, <laughs> 101 years old this year. <laughs> And Prince, di- and Prince dies at 57. Yeah, right. So right. Um, they do play the long game, and they plan what they're going to do decades in advance. And that's where they get the upper hand on us, because they're absolutely unified, they're absolutely on the same page, and they absolutely stick to their plans. And the rest of us that they're controlling, because when you look at the numbers game, it's ridiculous, tens of thousands probably at most, directing and controlling and manipulating the lives of the remaining 7 billion uh, in the world. I won't say on the planet for the flat earth crowd again, but, <laughs> you know, in the world. Uh, and you could, you could say, how is it possible for them to get it done with such small numbers? Well, because they are unified and they're all working together and they stick to the plan. We don't seem to be able to do that, do we, the rest of us? There is no unity. We have this thing supposedly called the truth movement, but I don't see a whole lot of unity within it. I just see people arguing and bickering with each other and pointing the finger and saying, you're a shill, you're a disinfo agent, when somebody says something they disagree with. And because we don't have that unity and because we're not aligning our thoughts, emotions and actions in the same way as these individuals are, and because most of us don't understand how reality works anyway, in that you can actually shape and mould the physical experiences that you undergo by way of your will and your intent if you know what you're doing and if you apply it and if there's large numbers of you you know focusing your will and intent on the same thing that you wish to manifest they understand that they understand that dynamic is at work in the nature of reality and so they get the job done and that's how they've been able to control us for so long it is and to say that these people are diabolical is an understatement and I'd, I'd really like to hear about your research that you've gone into about who these people really are. And this goes back, there's definitely evidence in the 50s and 60s, and I'm sure it goes back countless generations, but just how evil these people really are. And they're into definitely dark occult practices and child sacrifice and all this. And I would really like to hear from you about your research on who these people really are and what you've uncovered about, uh, for example, Jimmy Savile and all of his connections into the entertainment industry in the UK and how that permeates the entertainment industry everywhere. It's very difficult to put specific names on any of these individuals. Uh, I mean, you often hear the thing that if somebody has any kind of public profile, for instance, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers, you know, we're able to know about these people. You can look them up on Wikipedia. You can find photographs of them on the Internet. Uh, the Rothschilds have all these cover stories about how they're philanthropists and art collectors and all this sort of thing. So you hear the argument that if they're in the public eye and it's possible to find out about them, then they're not the ultimate key players. There's no doubt that the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers are very important players in this whole story. And they have very prominent roles, as do the British royal family. But they can't be the ultimate controllers of these things because these individuals keep themselves out of the spotlight and have no kind of public profile at all. That's why it's very difficult to put specific names on who is directing and controlling these things. But it's a kind of pyramid-type structure. So the ultimate power 
is at the very top of the capstone and it feeds down into the lower levels of the pyramid. So, you know, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and all of them will be very high up the pyramid, you know, within the capstone, but not at the very peak of it. And then right down at the base of the pyramid, you have all the foot soldiers and the stooges and the bagmen that do all the dirty work of the control system, the regular rank and file, uh, you know, members. And you can look at the music industry and you can see all these manipulated stooges uh, like Jay-Z and Kanye West and Miley Cyrus and Britney Spears and Katy Perry and Kesha, Lady Gaga, all these names. And they would be the foot soldiers. They're the ones that are doing the work, but they don't really have any ultimate power. You hear people say, Jay-Z's in the Illuminati and Beyonce's in the Illuminati. Absolutely not. They're just stooges of it. You know, they've achieved fame and fortune and yes, they're fabulously wealthy and yes, they're celebrities that everyone knows, but they're not the ultimate uh, power behind all of this. They're doing what they're told. They're absolutely owned and their lives and their souls are not their own. And Uh, it's unlikely they really understand what they're doing. In many cases, yeah. In many cases, when you see all this symbolism, all this dark occult stuff and Freemasonic imagery and Kabbalistic stuff going into stage shows and music videos, you could be sure that most of the time the artists don't even know what it represents. Or in the case of a music video, they probably don't even know it's there because they performed their routine in front of a green screen or something. And then all this symbolic stuff was stripped in at a later date. Or images of demonic entities were spliced into the the final cut of the video, you know, to go straight into the subconscious mind of those seeing it because that's the sort of thing that that goes on. But yeah, what we have controlling these industries and everything else is a religious priest class, basically, that are obsessed with ritual and ceremonial magic with a K. So when you get people that look at what goes on in the music industry and they look at somebody like Prince or Michael Jackson meeting an early demise, they'll say, it's all about the money. That's all it is. It's corporations killing off these artists because they want to get very rich off the back of them. Because we all know a dead artist is worth more to a corporation than a live one. And the minute one of these key artists goes, their back catalogue immediately, you know, the sales go through the roof. And then you have all these unreleased tracks that come out on albums and everyone snaps them up. And absolutely, that is an element of it. I'm not denying that that goes on. Of course, corporations get very rich off of prominent artists that meet early deaths. We've seen it all the time. But if that's all you think it is, if you just think it's corporate greed, then you are missing the point. Because so much of what goes on is steeped in the dark religious uh, belief systems of these individuals and these networks that are controlling things. It's all to do with ritual magic. It's very important to them. You know, they're satanic in nature. As we mentioned earlier, a lot of it feeds back into Saturn. They're absolutely obsessed with the the dark power of it and the control it seems to have over humanity. So uh, that's who we're dealing with here. And as I say, it's difficult to put specific names on it, but um, you can certainly see the calling cards of uh, these different networks. The Illuminati is another uh, phrase you often hear. And that pretty much is a kind of catch-all term for all these different secret societies and mystery schools that we're talking about. It's a convenient catch-all term, umbrella term. Um, But, yeah, you often hear people say it's the the Illuminati. But there will be many different kind of groups that all 
feed into each other and work alongside each other. Going back to what I was saying about how well organized they are and how they're able to all get on the same page in terms of their goals and their objectives. That seems to be a very generic term, though, just to say the Illuminati. I, I have trouble picturing a small group of people sitting around a boardroom smoking $1,000 cigars saying, okay, this this is what we're going to do next. I think it's more of a uh, loose conglomeration of people all working towards the same agenda. Now, what I do think goes on is that they are all into this dark religion and that these, these evil things go on. Uh, for instance, I remember hearing interviews with David Icke way back in the 90s calling out the royal family for both child uh, pedophilia and child sacrifice. Absolutely. Yeah, in The Biggest Secret, that was his uh, landmark book in 1998 that absolutely rocked people's worlds. I know you wanted to get into Jimmy Savile, so I'm not sure how familiar American audiences are with the antics of this character, Jimmy Savile. But I'll give you a brief overview of him. He was a DJ and a television presenter who worked for the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, which is basically an arm of the British government. It's a propaganda machine for the British establishment. But Savile worked for this corporation from the 1950s all the way through to his death in 2011. And it came out only after his death, at the age of 84, that he was actually a paedophile, serial child rapist, necrophiliac, and possibly a serial killer. It's been more difficult to pin the actual killings on him, but the amount of people that have since come forward and say, said that they've been sexually abused by him, and also that they've witnessed satanic rituals, dark occult rituals, at which he was a kind of priest, the amount of accounts that we have of this is absolutely breathtaking. And what's so staggering is the fact that the establishment and those that were looking after him managed to cover all this up so that it didn't come out until he died and he therefore was not able to face justice for it. So it emerged that Savile had been sexually abusing kids on BBC premises in his dressing room for decades. And yet we're asked to believe that nobody within senior management at the BBC had any idea it was going on. They just didn't know. And all his colleagues that worked with him all these years, they had no idea about it. Although many BBC celebrities in the years since Savile's death have come forward in what seems to be an exercise in damage limitation by saying things like, well, we all thought there was something about him. He was a bit creepy. He was a bit weird, but we couldn't ever prove anything. And <laughs> others, others have said, oh, yeah, it was a kind of open secret within the BBC that Savile liked kids, but nobody really said anything. It wasn't part of the culture. So, you know, who knows how many kids were sexually abused by this bloody monster and how many lives have been ruined not just those of the, the kids themselves, but all the other family members and all the knock-on effect it's had to people around them, you know, thousands and thousands of lives. And all of this could have been prevented, but instead it was covered up. So then it emerges that Savile was knighted by the Queen twice, so he became a sir, and a bit of advice that I would give to people is be very suspicious of anyone who is a sir or a lord. Because when it comes to all the revelations about institutionalised paedophilia in Parliament 
you know, in politics and the world of celebrity and everywhere else, the amount of sirs and lords that crop up just defies belief. So all these child rapists have been knighted by the Queen. And anyone that the Queen is coming into contact with is supposed to be vetted by MI5, the security services. So we're asked to believe that time and time and time and time and time and time and time again, they just happened to fail to uncover the fact that these individuals had a background in paedophilia and that the Queen knew nothing about it, bless her. She had no idea that she was knighting paedophiles. She just kept on doing it year after year after year after year, paedophile after paedophile after paedophile after paedophile. But, you know, she knew nothing about it. And incredibly, that seems to be enough for the general British public because nobody's really up in arms about this. I mean, there was shock when the Savile revelations broke first in 2011, but it pretty quickly died down. And the establishment has been doing lots of damage limitation exercises by trying to present the impression that Savile was pretty much a lone operator. He was just this rogue, bad apple that happened to slip through the net. They've thrown the odd other celebrity out to the dogs just to give the impression that something's being done. So we've had other BBC celebrities like Stuart Hall and uh, Dave Lee Travis and Jim Davidson and uh, a few other names, you know, very low level. And it's given the impression that, oh, yeah, these people were sexual deviants as well. So, see, we're doing something about it. We're rooting them all out. So, uh, you know, we're taking responsibility for it. But... The real key players in all of this are being protected from scrutiny. Savile was a close personal friend of the royal family and particularly Prince Charles. For his 80th birthday, Prince Charles sent Savile a pair of gold cufflinks with an engraved message. And the message read, Dear Jimmy, no one will ever know what you have done for this country. Now that could have a double meaning. Savile Savile was also brought in as an advisor to Prince Charles and Princess Diana when their marriage was said to be failing. So, you know, a very pertinent question is why would a sleazy, creepy, old disc jockey and television presenter be brought in as an advisor to the royal family out of all the other people that it could have been, you know? And... uh, so much other stuff has emerged about Savile. He volunteered as a porter in Leeds General Infirmary and also at Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Aylesbury. And it later emerged that he was into necrophilia, sex with dead bodies. And the reason why he'd volunteered to be a night porter at the Leeds Hospital is because he got access to the mortuary in the middle of the night. I mean, this is just stuff out of horror stories. Sure enough, Savile was born on Halloween, 1926. (laughs) And he died two days after Halloween. And his funeral was held on the 9th of November, which is 9-11, when you express that date in the British format. There have been some researchers that have claimed that Savile was actually a serial killer. He certainly had a close association with the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe. Uh, Savile went to visit Sutcliffe in jail. And one of the Yorkshire Ripper's victims... Her body was discovered very close to Savile's flat in Round Hay Park, Leeds. So it begs the question of what else Savile may have been into. Some researchers have suggested that he came from a long-running bloodline 
of uh, occultists that was deemed very important to the control system because this is something we find time and time again as well. There's a lot of importance placed on genealogy and bloodlines uh, through the ages and they seem to set people from these very important bloodlines to work on various aspects of their ongoing agenda through the generations. So some think that Savile was a kind of sorcerer or wizard going back generations. And he did this very famous interview with a guy called Louis Theroux for the BBC, incredibly, which was screened in 2000. And uh, the accusations of his paedophilia were actually raised in this programme. So the presenter, Louis Theroux, is driving in, in this car with Savile and he, he sort of raises the question of these rumours that had followed him around for years about him being a kiddie fiddler. And Savile kind of tries to deflect him by saying, well, I know I'm not, you know, and uh, I try and make out that I don't like kids because otherwise uh, the press will, the media will try and imply that I'm, you know, in some way into paedophilia. So he's trying to deflect that scrutiny against him in that programme. But later in that programme, he takes Louis Theroux to his flat in Leeds and he's got this wardrobe of women's clothing. And he says, Savile says, that this belonged to his mother and he referred to his mother as the Duchess. And a lot of people think that that was just this uh, affectionate term that he had for his mother, calling her the Duchess. But then others have speculated on whether she may have been some kind of, uh, you know, aristocracy or some kind of important bloodline through which Savile descended. And then there have been others who have suggested that this wardrobe of women's clothing may actually have been trinkets of some of his victims, trophies, because serial killers like to keep little, you know, keepsakes of some of their victims. So there's all these unanswered questions about Savile, but either way, he was clearly a very dark and very evil character, and he was mocking people the whole time. When you look at some of his old TV shows, he would be sitting on a sofa, surrounded by kids, and he'd have these kids on his knee. <laughs> absolutely sick he did this program called jim will fix it which was all about kids writing into the show asking jim to uh arrange for things that they want to do you know things they've always wanted to do or people they've always always wanted to meet and he was said to be the celebrity that would make that happen for them so the kids would come on the show and they'd sit on jim's knee you know but you also hear that savile far from just being someone that would indulge in these uh sick fantasies for himself was part of a paedophile ring that went very, very deep into the British establishment. It tied all the way into royalty, and it very much involved the political system. And you hear that Savile, and there's lots of evidence to suggest that Savile was a procurer of children for the rich and famous and for important establishment figures. He was closely associated with the former British Prime Minister Edward Heath, and Heath has been exposed in recent years, and he was by David Icke many years ago in The Biggest Secret, as a child rapist and a child killer himself. Edward Heath was into young boys. He used to take them out on a yacht that he had and sail out to Jersey, and these boys would never be seen again. And Savile was closely associated with Heath. So it's said that he was procuring children for these sick paedophile rings, and that's why he had so much influence and so much sway. And so, again, when you look at a programme like Jim Will Fix It 
and the title of it. And you realise that Savile was fixing up kids for paedophile rings within the establishment. You realise it's another sick joke at the expense of the general public. They're rubbing your nose in it. They're telling you what he's doing. Jim will fix it. Then you also have the fact that Savile was wheeled out for many years as the public face of the BBC's Children in Need. They've got this annual money grab appeal where they implore the British public to part with their cash to help all these poor kids that are in needy situations. Well, I would suggest that there'd be a whole lot less, whole lot fewer kids in need of assistance and help and the public's money if it weren't for the BBC <laughs> and, and, and the paedophile rings that have been shown to have operated within them. And yet every November... They come out and say, oh, you know, you've got to help these poor kids. We need your money. We can't do it without you. And they put Jimmy Savile up there as the public face of this when he himself has been abusing kids on BBC premises for who knows how many years. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And the BBC also spawned people like Jonathan King, who was another serial paedophile into young boys, did a couple of stints in jail for it. And they would wheel out people like Gary Glitter, who's another paedophile. He'd be there on Children in Need, sitting there with Jimmy Savile, saying, come on, folks, we need your money for all these poor kids. <laughs> Talk about taking the piss, really. And the reason I wanted you to point this out, Mark, is because this is just one example that happened to come to the surface, but these sorts of things are going on everywhere. And it's kind of a shame to see that the people of the UK are still kind of asleep that while they may have been shocked when it came out, it just sort of got glossed over. Now, five years later, you know? People are just letting it go, really. And you speak to the average guy in the street, and you can mention Jimmy Savile, and obviously his name is Dirt now, and nobody's got a good thing to say about him, and everyone understands that he was evil. But there is this sense that he was kind of a lone operator that just happened to slip through the net. Nobody's talking about his connections to royalty. Nobody's talking about how it was that he was knighted by the Queen twice and that they didn't spot any of this stuff, despite the fact that he'd been doing it for 50 years. Nobody's getting mad about the fact that in Britain we have to pay a licence fee to the BBC for the right to watch TV. <laughs> so, I mean, TV is mind control and it's dumbing people down. And, and yet you're paying for we're it. We're paying for it. You're paying for your own mind control. And they say that the BBC can only be funded by people paying this tax. So people are still blindly and obediently going along with this, knowing, because it's been proven, that the BBC is a nest of paedophiles and has protected many of them for so many years. And yet people are still paying up. What they should be doing is coming together in their vast numbers, all in unity, and saying, we're not paying it. What are you going to do? We refuse. We're not paying it. Can't put everyone in jail. You know, if one or two say, I'm not paying it, then they can pick them off and make an example of them, put them in a magistrate's court and then stick them in jail as an example to everyone else. But if hundreds of thousands or preferably millions of people say we're not funding paedophiles, I mean, not only refusing to pay the license, but this should, in any kind of sane world where any kind of justice exists, have spelt the end of the BBC. That institution should have been shut down. And it speaks volumes, the fact that it's still operating and people still tune into it and watch the news and believe what they're told and allow it to continue. You know, 
it's just I like to think that there would be other countries in the world where if a, sav- a scandal like this Savile thing emerged, then the institution would be shut down and there would be public protests and there would be outrage. But sadly, not in Britain. A long way to go. Yes, it is. But for those with eyes to see, we can see that this is a window into their world. This is the way these people really are. And they're not like us. These people are dark sinister and quite frankly disgusting absolutely and let me read you uh, an excerpt from the book this is a little quote that i took from a website a great website called the coleman experience named after john coleman that i mentioned earlier so this is an excerpt from a november 2014 article on the uk coleman experience blog and it really sums it all up so well the quote goes if you thought for one minute that Britain is really as it appears to be, you're very sadly mistaken. Beneath the pomp and pageantry lies a network of paedophilic depravity so vile and despicable it literally beggars belief. Don't be fooled into thinking Jimmy Savile was an isolated case either. He wasn't. I mean, that just really puts it all into context. That's on the Coleman Experience blog site. I don't know who the author was, but I mean, there's some great articles on that site if people want to look it up and they, they put it out there fearlessly they're naming names they're saying things that need to be said you know that is real journalism right there so check out the coleman experience definitely you know to add to that do you have any idea how david ike would have known back in the 90s since he was the only person saying it back then and calling out that this was going on well david ike worked at the bbc himself for many years so it's conceivable that he would have heard all these rumors about Savile during his years there uh, because there's a lot of other celebrities who are contemporaries of David Icke's that have come forward with these comments about oh yeah it was an open secret but nobody really talked about it uh, or it could be that insiders and whistleblowers approached Icke when he had emerged as you know this truth seeker and they felt that he was someone they could express this to. So I would guess it was one of those two ways. But I would like to make the point that you've got all this sick, disgusting, uh, unbelievably depraved activity going on within the British establishment. But you needn't think that it's any different in America. Because there are common elements on both sides of the Atlantic that crop up throughout this story. And it's all very dark and it's all very ugly. And I know it's negative subject area and it's very tempting for people to turn their back on it and say this is also dark and it's bringing me down i don't feel good about it it's put me in a dark place i'm not going to look at this but it's very very important that people do and people face up to what's going on unfortunately ritual sacrifice is a reality in this world unfortunately trauma-based mind control and satanic ritual abuse is a reality unfortunately paedophilia and child rape is a reality i know it's disgusting i know it's horrific i wish it wasn't taking place but it is and it's going to continue to take place until people in their large numbers face up to it and address it head on what these controllers rely on in terms of public reaction is exactly what they're getting which is people either saying uh, oh, this is too fantastic. I can't believe this. No, this is conspiracy theory. Uh, people that say this are just raving lunatics. Can't possibly be true. I don't see any evidence of it. I don't need to look at this. It's ridiculous. Business as usual. Carry on as you were. 
or people saying, yeah, I've heard that it goes on, but it, to be honest, it's just so horrific that I don't want to look at it. Those are exactly the kind of reactions that they're relying on. And for as long as they get them, then expect more of the same. So, you know, I think it's very important that people understand what goes on and they understand the methods and the tactics that are used if we're going to turn this situation around. As I said, it will be going on in America as well because it's the same control networks that run things on both sides of the Atlantic and in many, many other countries around the world as well. My research into the true nature of the entertainment business threw up a lot of common elements that you see cropping up time and time again. So we have the connections back into military intelligence all over the place. You have the dark influence of Alistair Crowley and all the uh, sort of secret societies and mystery schools that he was a part of and all the ritual magic that was involved with them. You have paedophilia coming up time and time again and you have um, connections into all this satanic stuff and it's all interlinked and interwoven into the music industry and people might like to ask themselves why that is the music industry is supposed to be about having fun enjoying yourself you know leisure time and when you get to the true nature of what goes on beneath the surface you have all this dark stuff bubbling away so it continues for as long as people turn their backs on it and don't face up to it that's a very important point to make I think it is. And there's one last topic I'd actually like to hit on with you, Mark, that uh, definitely drives close home to your heart. The music, as it changed over the years, you are very fond of the hip-hop music, especially of the early uh, generations of it. It seems to me that black culture was targeted harder than a lot of other people's. And while hip-hop started off as one thing, an expression of living on the streets and, and things that uh, were going on in real life, it's been absolutely decimated into this breeding ground for ignorance and self-centeredness and materialism and degradation of women. And I, since you've been a DJ for many, many years, I'd like to hear from you what what things were like early on in your career and, and how things changed over the years and, and what you think about how things are now compared to then. I really see the agenda playing out big time in the hip-hop genre. At least I see it now, and I've been able to see it in the five or six years that I've been awake to, to great truths. Uh, but prior to that, I was a part of that whole kind of industry machine in terms of being a DJ. And I was playing this music on the radio, and I was playing it out in clubs, and I was supporting many of the artists. And it just astounds me how I was unable to see for pretty much 20 years that there was an agenda being unrolled before my very eyes. It's not until you have it pointed out to you, and it's not until you can break the mind control spell that you realise uh, all this stuff that's going on. So that kind of gives me some empathy towards the large number of people still out there that are kind of in a walking trance and can't see what should be blatantly obvious right before their eyes, because I was like that myself until something happened to me and I was able to raise my consciousness and break free of the programming, you know. But um, I've absolutely been able to see the number that's been done on the hip-hop game. Because when you compare the artists that we have now at the forefront of what is referred to as hip-hop, but it's not really. Because the music, if you can even call it music, has been changed and altered and shaped and moulded so much 
that it bears absolutely no resemblance to what went before it. And it has no connection whatsoever with the original spirit and ethos of hip-hop. So you've got Little Wayne and Nicki Minaj and Drake and, you know, a severely degenerated Kanye West, who's nothing like he was when he first came into the game. And these are held up as the main figures in so-called hip-hop and Big Sean and Future and, you know, people like that, Wiz Khalifa and whoever else. And uh, listen to the sort of stuff they're talking about. You only hear a limited number of themes and it's all the same stuff, and it has been for many, many years. It's materialism, as you say, talking about brands, talking about the latest iPhone, talking about the latest uh, sneakers, talking about girls with fat asses up in clubs, talking about popping champagne, uh, how much money you've got, throwing wads of cash up in the air. That's all young people are hearing about through this so-called music. There's no conscious message anymore. There's no documenting stuff that goes on on the street apart from all that bullshit materialism stuff, you know. Um, th there's just no conscious, no consciousness to the music when you compare it to the early stuff that came out of this scene. And actually, there are metaphysical, spiritual concepts to hip-hop, which you can hear guys like Black Dot or Professor Griff, formerly a public enemy, talking about. If people have an interest in what's happened to hip-hop, they should really look up some of the work of this guy that refers to himself as Black Dot because he talks about how hip-hop was uh, an expression of spiritual components that lie deep within the DNA, the genetics of black people. And it's come out of African cultures from previous civilizations. The early days of hip-hop were a kind of manifestation of these components that were channel being channeled through uh, these new gener generations of black people you know out of the bronx in new york and then as it spread out into other areas of the u.s so there's that aspect of hip-hop and the controllers would understand this and the way i see it the controllers have contempt for all of humanity they see us all as the goyim or the great unwashed or the useless eaters and they want to decimate large swathes of the population and they want to slow kill a, a whole bunch of us but i see them as reserving a particular breed of contempt for people of color and black people and i can see how this has played out through the decades in many different ways when we had aids that hit black communities in uh, some very harsh ways then you had the emergence of crack cocaine uh coming up out of the uh, the black ghettos and that seems to have been specifically targeted at diminishing the black population. And then they've done a number on black culture and heritage and music. And that's been achieved particularly through the way that hip-hop has been degraded and debased and corrupted from a once meaningful and even spiritual art form into the toxic cesspit of garbage that it is now. So that's been a slow drip thing that has been done through the years. And I can look back on when I was very active as a DJ and the way certain artists were brought through and the way certain themes were being introduced into the lyrics of hip-hop and the way even the production methods changed from what used to be the case, sampling old soul and funk records and bringing through some of the spirit and some of the you know, life 
and some of the soul of, of these old records. You don't hear sampling anymore or very little of it. Now you've just got all these electronic digital productions that are very kind of cut off from the original essence of the art form. Everything's just produced digitally and it's got no soul to it. And when you combine that with debased, degraded lyrics, absolutely lacking in any kind of consciousness and just talking about bullshit materialistic stuff and things that really don't matter and when you've got a young generation of, of people just lapping up all this stuff and thinking this is great this is music that speaks to us this is this is our generation being uh, expressed through this music then you know you, you've had a, a whole shift that's taken place so anyone that remembers what hip-hop used to be 25 30 years ago that generation is going to be dying off before too long and it will be replaced by a generation that's been raised on all this current stuff. And it's all they've known. The production styles, the lyrical content is all they've known. That, to them, is hip-hop. And that's the way things are going to pan out from this point on. Unless, you know, some massive conscious awakening takes place and people become aware of the way in which this music has been used as yet another tool in mass mind control and social engineering. I completely agree with you on all that. And I think it's obvious that uh, it's just getting worse and worse, that nobody of substance is allowed to get on the main stage anymore when we see these huge concerts with massive symbolism at work there. it's They're not even trying to hide it anymore. It's not a subtle thing. It is very blatant and obvious, and they're just shoving it in our face. Yeah. And where are all the musical heroes anymore? I made this point on a show the other day. You know, there's got to be a reason why the likes of Prince, David Bowie, Michael Jackson, John Lennon, Bob Marley, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison are taken out. Why is it always the ones that have some kind of message of empowerment or upliftment or some kind of uh, conscious thing that they want to convey? I mean, OK, with Michael Jackson and with Prince, you could say the bulk of their music was about well, with Prince, it was about sex. With Michael Jackson, it was about whatever, this, that, and the other. But certainly, they made tracks that were spiritual and reflective and had some kind of meaningful message. You can point to quite a number of Michael Jackson and Prince tracks that did that. And then artists like John Lennon, I mean, the bulk of Lennon's solo work, all had some kind of conscious message to it. Same with Bob Marley, that's all he ever did. And then people like Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison were icons for a generation. And, uh, you know, if you, if you ignore the kind of background of Jim Morrison and the idea that he faked his own death, I mean, the, these were uh, figures that were seen to be inspirational to the generation of when they were around. And even Whitney Houston. Most of Whitney Houston's songs were about love, when you look at it. It's either romantic love or, you know, the greatest love of all, agape-type love, love for all of humanity. Most of her songs were very positive, and they made you feel great to listen to them. And these are all the artists that we see being taken out. So my question is, where is today's Bob Marley? Who is today's John Lennon? You know, wh where is today's Whitney Houston, even? <laughs> Can anyone name artists that are creating the same kind of impact that Absolutely these people not. did? Absolutely I certainly not. can't. No, and they're not being allowed to be. I'm sure there are artists out there who wish to be on, uh, on the main stage and, and trying to 
lead the next cultural revolution, but they're certainly not going to be allowed to be there at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's let's not uh, lose sight of the fact that great conscious music is, of course, still being made. And there are some incredible awakened artists out there that are really expressing themselves in such a potent way musically. I mean, when it comes to hip hop, uh, I don't want to give the impression that no meaningful hip hop is still being made. It absolutely is. There's some amazing artists like K Reno, uh, Diesel Automatic, established names like Dead Prez, Public Enemy. It's an artist called Elias Clay, guy out of Canada called Kale Sampson. I showcase all these artists on the podcast that I do called The Sound of Freedom, which is all about conscious, meaningful music from awakened artists. It's mainly hip-hop, but I also include reggae. I include some old rock tracks, uh, indie tracks, uh, dance and house music stuff. So all this stuff is still being made. And if you dig beneath the surface, and if you switch off the radio, stop watching MTV, and stop going out to clubs and bars and coffee shops uh, because you're never going to hear all this stuff there, and you really go digging in all the right places, you can find some incredible music. But, of course, you don't hear guys like Kay Reno on the radio, and you don't see Diesel Automatics videos on MTV. And there's a reason for that, because they're all corporate-controlled, and they just want their stooges and their puppets putting all their symbolism out and their lyrical themes They don't want artists that are mavericks, that are in control of their output, that are expressing themselves naturally, creatively, true artists, real poets. They don't want that. That's why you never hear them. But they are out there, and great music is still being made that speaks to people and really resonates in these times. And I would certainly encourage people to seek this stuff out. You can check out my podcast, The Sound of Freedom, to get an idea of some of the artists that are putting this stuff out there for sure. So, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. And also, I don't want to leave this interview on a doom and gloom note, Jason, because we've been to some dark places, certainly, in the subject matter. But, you know, I want to stay inspirational when we come to wrap this thing up. So let's certainly leave on that vibe. No, I completely agree with you. And we did cover a lot of ground, and a lot of it was indeed dark. So let's end on a high note. Where can people find you? Tell them all about what you do. And I can definitely say your book is is fantastic, and I I would definitely encourage people to go out and get it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So the book is Musical Truth, and it's available in printed form in both a regular paperback and there's also a special edition hardback. And there's also a Kindle version for people that prefer that format. So all of those formats are available on Amazon, You can do a search for Mark Devlin Musical Truth there. Also, it's available through Barnes & Noble. I'm selling signed copies myself. I've got my own personal author's stash of books. If anyone wants to get one from me direct and can pay via PayPal, then I can arrange to have one sent out from here. So all you need to do is just drop me an email to mark at markdevlin.co.uk if you want to get one from me personally. I'm doing a whole bunch of talks, public events to help promote the book. Most of those are in the UK. Anyone listening in the UK, you can check out the schedule via the website musicaltruthbook.com. So there's a bit of blurb there about the book as well at musicaltruthbook.com. I'm not coming to the US for the foreseeable future. I was there just recently at the Free Your Mind conference where I met yourself. Yes. And uh, (laughs) what an awesome gathering that was. That was just... uh, an incredible thing to be a part of. I'm sure you'd agree. Yeah, oh, totally. Great meeting of the minds, a lot of great speakers, and it was uh, it was really wonderful just being able to meet other people, like-minded people, all under one roof. 
And that's the sort of thing that gives me hope and inspiration because you can feel that the whole situation is useless, particularly when you delve into these dark subject areas. But you go to something like Free Your Mind and you realise that there are so many people from so many different walks of life, you know, <laughs> that um, are absolutely on the same page as you. They've been through the same kind of process of conscious awakening as you. They're not falling for the bullshit anymore. They can see through the programming. And it's so encouraging just to be around those people and to pull your vibratory frequencies with that of, of these people. And that is our way out of all of this. Large numbers of people coming into their humanity, their true spirituality, and realizing what's being done to us, realizing that we've been conditioned and programmed from birth to see the world in a certain way and realizing that actually it's nothing like that and realizing that the only reason these control networks have had so much power over so many of us for so long is because they understand the nature of reality and they understand how you can translate your thoughts, emotions and actions into the reality that is experienced in this realm. Alistair Crowley talked of magic with a K being the act of causing change to occur in accordance with will. And that is the key to it. We are so much more powerful than we realize. And the vibratory frequencies, the high, uh, the high vibrations involved with love and all of its derivatives, all the emotional states connected to love, are so many times more powerful than the low density frequencies involved in fear and all the derivatives of fear. We live in a fear-based society where anxiety and stress and guilt and doubt and worry and all these different expressions of fear are everywhere you look. And that's been manipulated into place. That is not a natural state of human existence. The natural state is all rooted in love and these higher frequencies. And if enough of us come to this realization and pull our vibrations and pull our consciousness and apply our will and our intent into the type of future that we want and a type of existence where truth and freedom and justice and fairness for everyone is what prevails rather than all this suffering and misery and death and all this dark stuff then we can have that any time we want it. That's the great news. We just need enough people to understand this stuff. And, you know, the first steps towards that can be something like looking at all the symbolism in a music video and thinking, well, why is it there? Looking at something like the strange circumstances surrounding the death of Prince and saying, well, it doesn't all add up. Why is the mainstream media not telling us all this stuff? That can be the catalyst towards somebody embarking on this incredible journey of discovery of the truth about themselves, about this reality in which we live, and about the power that we have to shape and mould the kind of reality that we experience. It all starts from somewhere. And I see this shift taking place. It's not happening as quick as I would, as I would like, and it's not happening as quick as many others, I'm sure, would like to see it happening. But it's going on all around us, and you can see evidence of people slowly waking up to truth, slowly stepping into their true power, and slowly getting onto the path that we all need to be on 
to shake off this control system that we have and to have a better future and a, a fantastic future for our children and the next generation. So it's on. The process is underway. Uh, join us, you know, everyone. Get on board with it. And let's all shake off these sick, evil psychopaths and everything that they represent. They've had it all to themselves for a very long time now. It's time the game was switched up and it's time that we started changing the rules and uh, enjoying the type of experience that we want to experience. That can happen anytime we want. How about now? That was absolutely beautifully said. And to put a capstone on all of that, two can play the game that the elite are playing with us. They use their mind control and symbolism to channel energy towards their negative means. Well, we can do the same thing in a positive way. We just all have to be on the same page. Absolutely. Everything they are doing to us, we can do to ourselves. But we just overwrite their sick, twisted, depraved version of reality, which is all rooted in dark negativity, with love and positivity and light. And we could overwrite it a thousand times over tomorrow. You know, a phrase that I love is, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? Any one individual, no matter how much they might think they don't have any power or they wouldn't make any difference to things, any one individual can be a very key part in this process that needs to take place. And if not now, then when? You know, right now or tomorrow morning is as good as in 10 years. So let's bring it on. I totally agree. Well, Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here. This has been a fantastic information-packed interview. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Sincerely appreciated. Thank you, man. Good to be on. Good to kick it to you. And let's do this again sometime. Indeed. I would have to say that was an amazing interview, and I highly, highly, highly recommend Mark's book. He is absolutely spot on with his research. Check him out. We'll see you soon. (laughs) 